You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it, and I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Let's get started. Welcome to The Bloodline with LLS. My name is Elissa, and today we are podcasting live from the Global Adolescent and Young Adult Cancer Congress, a cancer conference for healthcare and nonprofit professionals in Long Beach, California. LLS is a proud sponsor of this event, which is attended by professionals around the world to present on the most pressing issues facing adolescents and young adults with cancer. You may hear the acronym AYA throughout this episode. This stands for Adolescent and Young Adult and generally covers patients who are diagnosed between the ages of 15 and 39, as well as pediatric patients who may have late-term and long-term side effects. In this episode, we will be speaking to some of the presenters at this conference, and we'll be covering young adult health care disparities, mental health, and the uncertainties that young adults face after a cancer diagnosis. For our young adults, as well as other patients and caregivers listening to this episode, we hope that the information presented will empower you to speak to your treatment team and advocate for the best care for you. So let's get started. My name is Abby Rosenberg. I am currently the Chief of Pediatric Palliative Care at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston Children's. And I've been there for a few months. Previous to that, I was at Seattle Children's Hospital in the University of Washington, where I was the Director of Pediatrics for the Cambia Palliative Care Center of Excellence and the Director of the Palliative Care and Resilience Research Lab. What was the name of your session, and why is this subject important for the care of AYAs with cancer? My session name is entitled Transitions and Resiliency. And Mm -hmm. what I'm going to talk about is evolving uncertainty and how resilience can help us in times of change. We talk about transition all the time in adolescent and young adult oncology. There Mm -hmm. are half a dozen transitions that we toss around almost to normalize them. So the transition from being a well person to a person with cancer, the transition from being somebody who is receiving cancer-directed therapy to somebody who is no longer receiving therapy and is labeled as a survivor. We talk about transition from curative to end-of-life care. We talk about transitions from pediatric to adult medical settings. And every single one of those comes with a ton of uncertainty and a ton of stress. And all of those are in the midst of the transitions that are adolescence and young adulthood, the growing up and the transition of becoming your own person. I think we who live in this AYA oncology space really understand that this is hard on top of hard on top of hard for many of the folks that we work with and care for. And so I'm really excited that we're going to be talking about this explicitly. Yes, definitely. So can you tell us some of the highlights of your presentation? (laughs) Yeah, It's funny because the presentation has been in transition too a little bit. And when we first 
decided to have me talk, we were going to spend most of the time talking about my own research in resilience mm -hmm. and specifically how developing resilience resources can buffer some of the stressors of change and transition. Right. And honestly, I am making a little bit of a last minute pivot because what I really want to talk to folks about is some ideas that I'm playing with about how there's a lot of examples of transition within AYA oncology mm -hmm. and the world has gone through a lot of transition in the past few years. Yes. And I think that there are things that we can learn from the AYA oncology space and applying it to all of the transitions that global societies are going through. And I think that we have actually learned some stuff in the last years from watching global society transition that we can translate back to adolescents and young adults with cancer. And so mm -hmm. I'm doing something that I rarely do in a talk, which is not a lot of actual research and a lot more of my ideas and opinions and sort okay. of tossing them out and saying, what do y'all think about this? Because here's some stuff that's been on my mind as we navigate our own transition as a society. Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of change for the cancer community in general, but certainly young adults with COVID. I myself, while I'm interviewing you, I'm in a mask as a leukemia survivor, oh, yeah. and we're still trying to yes. navigate this whole new world where it's not just cancer. Right. And, and there's right. this other thing that a lot of us now are higher risk and dealing with that level of uncertainty as right. well. What are some of your ideas? I'd love to hear. The first is that for a long time when we have thought about resilience, we have thought about like a line. Maybe it's a bumpy line or a pathway, but there was this sense that when we go through tough times and transition, we continue to move forward. Right. And I think the pandemic has taught us that that is not entirely true. That it's more like a lot of loop-de-loops. Yes. And sometimes it's backwards, sometimes it's forward, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's sideways. And really how we need to think about resilience is less that there is this always forward movement and more that we can shift between different phases of resilience and all of those phases are valid. So sometimes, for example, there's a day where you just get out of bed and get through the day because that is the best you can do. And previously people would have said, well, that's not resilient. And I think that that absolutely is resilient because that day is a day where getting out of bed was hard. Yeah. And then there are other moments where we do move forward, maybe by leaps. And so I want to call out how we need to think about and give credit where it's due. Mm -hmm. And then a flip idea is almost the opposite, which is that we, during the pandemic, especially for marginalized communities, hear a lot about how we glorify resilience. We who didn't go through the adversity look at those who did and we say, wow, you are so incredible and amazing, and how can you do what you've done all this time? And we hear from a lot of folks that are like, just stop calling me resilient and fix the problem. I don't want to have to be resilient. Yes. And so if one is about how do you recognize a getting through day versus a leap forward day, the other big idea is how do we celebrate resilience without making it exceptional? We need to be able to recognize and support people who need resilience when they need it. And we need to be doing more to change the system so that they need it less. Yeah, I think it's definitely important for healthcare professionals, nonprofit professionals to hear this and hear how they can interact with young adults with cancer in a yeah. better way. Yeah. And I think everybody with cancer listening right now will understand when you just said, it's almost too much credit 
sometimes mm. for being brave. Sometimes I'm just getting through my day. That's all I'm doing. How can you say that I'm brave? But at right. the same time, there are those small victories that. that somebody can do that feels so good to them in that moment or that they're just completing their goal for that right. one day. And you want to celebrate that. I think about this when I think about folks with cancer. It's like they'll say, I could do nothing but be resilient. I had yes. no choice but to get through this. That was the new reality that was in front of me. And those of us who are bearing witness look at it with such awe. And there's a little bit of a balance where mm -hmm. it does deserve to be recognized. And you also have to recognize the person who did the work and the person that they were before, during, and after. That, I think, is the thing where we're stuck. Resilience as a word has become taboo. We don't like talking mm -hmm. about resilience anymore. People roll their eyes when you talk about resilience these yes. days. That's a bummer for somebody who built their career studying resilience, but I think <laughs> this is where we're at. This is why the field is transitioning. We have to think differently about how we measure and label and celebrate both everyday resilience and exceptional resilience. Yes. I'm wondering if there's something to be said from taking the cue from the patient yeah. as well. If they are excited about something small that they did, it felt good to them, even though they may think it's small yeah. to treat that as a victory. Exactly. And, but then not go over above and beyond if they aren't leading that way. I think that that's exactly right. A lot of what we do at the bedside is ask people, not only like, how are you doing this? But what are the things that we should be celebrating with you? Mm -hmm. And giving the patient their own moment. And I think the other thing is to give them a moment to say, I don't want to talk about this yeah. today. Or today I'm getting through the day because I'm angry and that's okay. We can give them that space. Yes, absolutely. So where do we see this going? Are there going to be studies done on this, surveys, more connections with patients? The research that I will present is we have a resilience intervention that we built in partnership with adolescents and young adults with cancer. Mm -hmm. And that program is called Promoting Resilience and Stress Management, or PRISM. We've done lots of research with PRISM and it works. It improves quality of life, reduces depression and alleviates psychological distress and it improves hope amongst teenagers and young adults with cancer. I think the next step is how do you bridge some of the systems challenges that we're starting to see with individual patient level programs like PRISM. So mm -hmm. when I hear, for example, from a marginalized community that they don't want to talk about resilience anymore. They want us to fix the system. I, as somebody who understands resilience, also understand that I can do something for that person who is living with that adversity. What we need to do now as a research community is also think about how do we take away some of the constant stress from the system to make it a little bit easier for people who are already dealing with so much. Mm -hmm. And so that research is entirely different. It's systems level, policy level stuff. And I yes. think we need to think as a community about what that might look like. Mm -hmm. Well, that is exciting to see where this could potentially go to help patients. Our final question today on our patient podcast homepage, we have a quote that says, after diagnosis comes hope. Mm -hmm. So based on your professional experience and research, what advice would you give to patients and caregivers to give them hope after a diagnosis and help them to navigate the uncertainties that come throughout treatment and survivorship? Well, I think hope is one of the most important resilience resources there is. Yes. And I think 
we, in general, need to really be talking with patients and families about their hopes, helping them to support and diversify those hopes. We often talk about hope and what else you're hoping for so that we can really enable folks to see something that they would like to move forward towards. I think, though, for resilience, it's not actually that complicated, it turns out. So (laughs) the ways that I do this as a clinician is I ask people about their resources and their strengths and their struggles. What have you done in the past when times are hard? That helps me understand in a snapshot what their resilience resources are, who helps you. I can really quickly get a sense of how to champion some of those things that they will need. And then I normalize and validate their struggles on their hard day. If you're having a bad time, if all you could do is get out of bed today, you're normal and you're pretty damn resilient. That's okay. (laughs) And we're going to talk about that too. Mm -hmm. Well, that's wonderful. That's great advice. And I know we're getting to you before your session. So I'm so excited to (laughs) listen to it. And um, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. My name is Dr. Christabel Chung, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Social Work, and I'm a member of the Greenbaum Comprehensive Cancer Center. My name is Mike Roth. I am a pediatric oncologist at MD Anderson Cancer Center, where I co-lead the Adolescent Young Adult Program, and I also chair the AYA committee within the Children's Oncology Group. Hi, my name is Nelson Peralta, he, him, his. I'm 28 years old. I am a survivor of acute lymphoblastic leukemia. I've relapsed twice and currently about to hit a two-year mark of my bone marrow transplant in August, so I'm really looking forward to that. So what was the name of your session and why is this subject important for the care of AYAs with cancer? So the title of our session was Marginalized and Minoritized Disparities and Unequal Treatment in AYA Oncology. It's an important topic because the experiences of inequities that we see in the general population, they just continue in the AYA space just because it's an extension of the larger medical community. So it's to be expected. We see disparities across the board in cancer care for patients from underserved populations. And unfortunately, like Dr. Chung said, these disparities persist and we're not moving the needle. So it's really essential that we come together and identify real world ways to actually make improvements. So can you tell me some of the highlights of your presentation today? Yeah, I think the biggest highlights were our patient advocates. The point of our session was to partner patient advocates with researchers and clinicians in the field doing the work. And what we showed is that we used their embodied knowledge and used an embodied research technique that I've been developing to then make demands of researchers and clinicians and ask real questions that were derived from their personal lived cancer experiences. And so we had three partnerships that we demonstrated. And then the researchers and clinicians like Dr. Roth each responded in their own style. So we saw how Dr. Roth turned his into a conversation and a dialogue. I was part of a panel in which I shared my experience being uh, a queer person of color, specifically indigenous, and talked about kind of what it felt like to be diagnosed and then having relapses, how that's affected both my personal, professional, academic life. And one of the things that I wanted to ask Dr. Mike Roth was if there was a protocol in terms of sexual orientation or sexual 
practices, activities as it relates to gay men who are either AYA or survivors. And I was just very interested to know about that. Yeah, coming from the provider side where we really struggle to meet the needs of our AYAs from underserved communities. It was a learning experience for me personally and for many in the audience. And the most impactful part of the session was just to hear the patient experience and what our AYAs go through that as a provider we don't think about. I think all of us have a lot of learning to do and a lot of processing to do. And what we really need to do most is partner with our patients and partner with our advocates to implement change and change that makes a difference. Yes, I think that's what I've seen as a theme of the conference as a whole is they really need to listen to the patient voice, right? Right, but then also not just listen and then feel bad about it or listen and feel good about what mm -hmm. you're doing. It's really to listen and then learn something and take that and respond to it. And so we showcase that in our session in the sense that we listened to the patient stories. They had questions from us. We learned from what their stories told us. And then we each responded in our own way. And sometimes the response is, I'm sorry, I don't have the answer yet. Yes. But other times it's, hey, we have a framework for systems change. And here it is, here you go. And so if you wanna do something, let's advocate for this at your institutions or even at the individual professional level. This is what you can do to be more of a reflexive professional. So I think we offered different types of solutions and we were real to what answers we have and what answers we don't have. Yeah, what I really liked was when you put up on the board all the different types of experience or types of physicians and providers that a patient might experience. So one who's very inclusive, one who maybe is egalitarian, middle of the road, doesn't really know what to do, doesn't bother them, and then anti-inclusive. Could you go over that and what that's about? Yeah, I never want to get in the business of labeling people. Right. It's kind of like in my anti-racist work, I always say, when you label something anti-racist, it means you will stop the conversation about that thing yes. oftentimes, right? And so you're really saying that there's no hope for whatever that thing is and that we should completely replace it, right? So to say that someone is anti-inclusive, no person is anti-inclusive. It's right. the behavior or the action or the thing. We've all done all of those things of being egalitarian, reflexive, or anti-inclusive at various moments in time. But it's pointing out the moments that maybe by rushing past asking pronoun preferences, that's anti-inclusive for some patients. Getting that feedback to the clinician is important then so that they don't accidentally do that to someone. It doesn't mean that they're an anti-inclusive clinician all of the time. It's right. just that they need that little bit of feedback and they can continue to work on it. We're all learning and we assume that we're all in this because we really care and we're all well-meaning, but let's make sure that we're well-doing now as well. Yes, and that's what I really like about this conference as well is that you are educating healthcare professionals to do better for their patients, to listen to their patients, to ask those questions, to help the patient advocate for themselves, right? Yeah, the partnership between the patient advocates, the providers and the researchers and having everyone in the same space is just really powerful. And it's not something that typically exists to this extent with this many people who are so passionate about improving outcomes for all people. And yes. I think traditionally we've been proud of the progress we've made for many AYAs, 
But now we really have to make sure that we're making progress for all and meeting our patients where they are and where they want to be met. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's so many disparities within the young adult community. And then we're, of course, looking at LGBTQIA plus disparities and racial health disparities as well. And so I think it's really important what you all talked about today. And again, really educating the healthcare providers to make it better for the patients at the end of the day. Right? Yeah, I mean, we just appreciate the forum and the opportunity to connect and share. And personally, I appreciate the opportunity to learn from my colleague, Dr. Chung and others. Mm -hmm. These are learning opportunities and we need more of them. Yes. And one of the challenges is the communication or lack of communication and being in the same space at the same time and having the opportunity to hear directly from our patients, we need more of that. And that needs to be the standard as opposed to the exception. Yeah, and I do have to say that hopefully folks saw that we modeled a little bit of a, a mini revolution on that stage. Yes. And it takes people with sort of a revolutionary mindset because we're not trained. It's not everyone's fault. We're not trained and our systems are not designed for us to be inclusive. And so I think that like everyone does their little part and just pushes it a little bit further. Yes. And then we create this amazing impact. And I think it was great what you both did bringing in that patient voice. I loved how they were there sharing their stories and Christabel, you too, sharing your story and being able to ask that question and partner with a doctor. So that was wonderful. So a uh, final question today on our patient podcast homepage, we have a quote that says, after diagnosis comes hope. One aspect of hope is empowerment to advocate for care. As we know, AYA patients can face unequal care and disparities before and after a cancer diagnosis. Based on your experience and research, what advice would you give to patients and caregivers to advocate for their own care? It's interesting. I think that we all do such a good job of telling other people what they should do. But then when you think about like in your own life, when have you advocated for your own care? And when I think about even like for myself in survivorship, my own managing cardiotoxicity recently, my cardiologist retweeted one of my tweets on Twitter. And then we had a little exchange and he was just kind of like, so where are you on your follow up? When was your last echo? Uh -oh. And I was like, uh oh. <laughs> and then he very quickly made that appointment for me. And so why does it take that to do our own stuff? You know the answer, Dr. Roth. I think it's partly on the providers to empower the patients to really make them know that we need them to advocate for themselves because in the current world that we live in, if they don't advocate for themselves, many fall through the cracks and it's something we need to address and it's something that we need to deal with together. But advocating for ourselves is hard at every level. It is. But we need to change how we do things so patients do feel empowered and they feel like that is the norm as opposed to the exception as well. It's just so hard when many of us are a little bit hypocritical in our own personal lives. Yeah, I think specifically I can speak about being Latino. And at least for me, it's been, I should always be grateful about the fact that I got care. So to even ask for anything extra, because it seems extra, is to almost be ungrateful. And one of the things is if you feel pain, ask for pain medication. If it's greater pain, don't be afraid to ask for greater pain medication because a lot of the times we think we have to just sit by and let it happen. And that also has to do with mental health. If you're not feeling okay, ask to be seen by a mental health specialist and know that you know more about your body than anybody else can know. And allowing yourself to be honest when you don't feel okay is very, very crucial because ultimately it's gonna help for you to get 
the access to the help right away. And it also lets your doctors and the people that are your support system to get to know just how you might re react. So not being afraid of asking for more because we didn't choose to have cancer and we didn't choose to have to get care. So allowing yourself to ask, I think is very important. And I think that it all goes back to a little bit of the theme of what you all were talking about today was really just making the patient feel safe, right? Feel safe with the doctor. And I think that really helps with self-advocacy as well to be able to share what's going on and continue to improve the care, improve their relationship with their doctor and treatment team. Trust is important in every aspect. I mean, patients are coming to us and giving us the privilege of sort of entrusting us with their lives. And we need to respond in a way that allows them to trust us and partner with us to better their health, better their happiness. It's hard to come in, meet a stranger who you need their help and expect that right away you're going to bond and everything they say is going to be the right information, which is not always the case. But we've got to get better at partnering, at communicating, at really just being on the same team. Absolutely. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you, and I hope the rest of the conference goes well for you. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you. I'm Brad Zebrak. I'm a professor of social work at the University of Michigan. I am also a 35-plus year survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma. I was diagnosed at the age of 25 years old. That is wonderful. Such a long time to be surviving oh, yeah. and thriving. For sure. That's great. So what was the name of your session and why is this subject important for the care of AYAs with cancer? So the session was called Mental Health in AYAs, Cancer's Impact on Life and Life's Impact on Cancer. And what we were really trying to say in our session was that it's not only important for clinicians and care providers to take into account how young people are being affected by cancer and the treatment and how it's impacting on their life, but to also consider that young people have had a life before they were diagnosed with cancer. And for all the good or the challenging things that might have been happening in their lives before their diagnosis, those things are relevant. Those things are significant and are going to carry over into the cancer experience and their ability to cope and deal with those challenges. And I would hope that our healthcare providers and our researchers and our cancer center programs really take that into account. Yeah, yeah. Any other highlights of your presentation that you'd like to share with our patients and caregivers? Sure. What I was really trying to emphasize in that presentation is that the world is a very different place today than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, yes. you know, even 30 years ago for some of the older folks who have been in medicine and working in healthcare for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And we have to remember that young people today are living in kind of a rather unstable world. Yes. And that expectations for the young people are different. In my early years, my goal was I wanted to be this career or that career. And the expectation was like, you get in a job and that's the one you want to uh -huh. carry through, hopefully for You're the rest of your life until <laughs> yes. you retire, right? But today we know that young people on average are going to have five different jobs mm -hmm. in their lifetime as an adult. Yeah. Um, and that almost sounds low. Well, oh, that's the our, average. Yeah. So you know that some of them are carrying two or three jobs at the same yes. time. Cost of living is expensive. Living in these cities with high rents or the ability to buy a house. You know, again, back mm -hmm. in the 1950s, 60s, buying a house was the American dream. 
And now I think a lot of young people just don't see that as a real possibility in their life. And that could be contributing to mental health challenges. Hopefully you're all not watching a lot of news on TV because watching the news on TV can be really distressing. We know that constant exposure to social media is not good for our, our mental health. Obviously, there's the FOMO that young people experience. Yes. That's kind of normal, but then it, I think it's gone beyond that. Yeah, and then um, when you're going through cancer, you're also seeing everybody else around you just go on with their lives, ex- they get married, have children, go on vacations when you are stuck. Exactly, and I think that can be really disappointing and frustrating, saddening, depressing mm-hmm. for young people. And what I would just say is that As challenging as that is, it's normal. I want to affirm for young people that cancer sucks. Yes. I will always remember when I was going through my therapy and talking with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife of 30 (laughs) plus years, we would often talk about positive attitude. And it's like, yeah, I want to have a positive attitude. But for a while, I felt it was like this unfair expectation that, oh, I have to always remain positive. And there were some days that just really suck, you know, emotionally or physically. And I remember my wife saying to me, you know what? Positive attitude doesn't mean being happy all the time. Positive attitude means just being okay with where you are on any given day. Yes. And just getting to a point of being okay with whatever I'm able to do in that day. And that was really helpful, especially in those days when I would come back from my chemotherapy. And I remember I would just want to crawl into bed and pull the covers over my head and not want to do anything. I'd feel sick for a day or two. And then I would start in my head spinning about, can't do any of the things I used to do. I love to go hiking and bicycling. I was a big outdoors person, still am. I had to kind of do this reframe in my head around, well, what can I do today? And I remember usually it was the day after chemotherapy. All I could really do is reach out from my bed and turn on the radio and just shift the radio dial back and forth and back and forth during the day. And maybe by the second day, I'd feel a little bit better and I would get out of bed and I'd walk down the refrigerator and I'd get something to eat. And rather than see those things as like, oh, I can't be out there running three miles and being fit, right. but I can walk down the refrigerator today and that's my success for today. Yes. Maybe tomorrow. It's a small victory. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to not discredit those things yeah. and really take them into account and see them as little victories that can eventually add up over time. Yeah. And even just those small goals for the day. I remember when I was going through my leukemia treatment, my only goals were to walk downstairs and cook for myself. That is all that I wanted to do. Yeah. <laughs> and uh-huh. if I was successful at just doing that, I felt good. Uh, yeah. And it's it really day- important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What other issues are affecting young adults today that could affect their mental health while they're going through cancer? I think one of the big challenges that young people have today, whether they have cancer or not, is the disconnection and social isolation that so many of them are describing. There was a report that came out just a couple of weeks ago from the Surgeon General of the United States who said that the biggest threat to the mental health of our country, not just young people, but all people, is social isolation. Yes, especially after COVID. It's COVID, and it's also actually related to social media. Uh It's that we've disconnected ourselves from one another. And we actually bear that disconnection within our bodies. It accumulates. And what I really appreciate about the Surgeon General was that he also came up with a remedy. And he said the remedy is connection. 
We need to make efforts to build connection, real physical connections to the extent possible in our families, in our communities, and in our society. A lot has been taken away from communities. Yes. When I was growing up, I'd come home from school, we'd go to the public park. The parks had after-school programs from sports to riding to dance, all sorts of things for kids to do. Those things don't exist anymore. Yeah. City budgets have been cut. There's talk about how the wealth in this country has been concentrated amongst a very small proportion of people. Yes. And what's significant about that is that there's so much money concentrated amongst a few number of people, that means less money for everybody else, yeah. less money for programs, less money for services. So what are young people to do when they come home from school and there's nothing happening in their community? They're thinking, well, I'll just connect with my friends, or I'll do my homework, or and they don't actually realize what they're missing or what they could have. And I think this is where we all need to advocate for changes in our communities to say, hey, we have the right and we deserve opportunities in our community that allow us to connect with one another. And I hope that our leaders and our policymakers could move to that place of starting to redistribute resources so that all people can benefit. And young people benefit, young people with cancer will benefit because yes. it'll get us to that point of having more connection. Yes, and I think we see that a lot in the AYA community. There is such a need for connection. We have a lot of nonprofits stepping up and survivorship programs at hospitals and really providing those opportunities for connecting with other cancer sure. patients. Yeah. There is such a need to get people together and to find other people who understand exactly. what they're going through. It, those types of programs are so important. Two of the programs I really appreciate are First Descents and True North Treks mm -hmm. that take young cancer survivors out on river kayaking trips, whitewater rafting trips, surfing trips, yes. rock climbing trips that challenge young people to get back into their bodies again. And when young people participate in those programs, afterwards what they say is, I never even imagined how impactful this program can be. I never realized how important it could be to me to connect with other young survivors yes. who are going through the same things that I've been going through. And I know it takes a risk. It takes a lot of courage. Yes, you know, put you're, yourself out there. To put yourself mm -hmm. out there. Yeah. I would just encourage young survivors to just take that step. Say yes. Say yes yeah. to the world, because when you do that, the benefits are just really tremendous. Yes. I always tell people that the research and my treatment team, of course, saved my life, but connecting with the young adult community saved my soul. Oh, that's to, beautiful. Went to CancerCon and met so many young adult survivors, met so many blood cancer survivors, yes. and it was just incredible. It felt like they could understand me with very few words, and that is what I needed at that time in my life and now still seven years out where I need to have people that understand and that helps me with my mental health yeah. as well that I have people to reach out to exactly. when things are not going well. Yeah, what I really appreciate about a lot of these programs that are for adolescents and young adults with cancer mm -hmm. is that they've been developed by AYA survivors themselves. Yes. So they get it Yeah. and they develop programs. What I loved about Stupid Cancer ever since its initiation was they got it. This idea of social meetups, 
It's like young people don't really want to go to a cancer support group. Yeah. Oftentimes the last thing they want to do is to do more of something that has to do with cancer. And while these programs like Stupid Cancer have the word cancer in them, what they're really about is just connection. Yes, just connection. Yeah. Yes. And for our listeners, we will have links for all of these different programs cool. in the show notes for you to take a look and find that connection. So our final question for you today, on our patient podcast homepage, we have a quote that says, after diagnosis comes hope. One aspect of hope is empowerment to advocate for care. So based on your professional experience and research, what advice would you give to patients and caregivers to advocate for their mental health care? I would first want them to affirm for themselves that how I'm feeling today is valid. And if they're struggling with feelings of sadness or depression or anxiety, to mention it to their doctor. Sometimes the doctors ask, sometimes they don't. Yes. But what you're feeling is important and to bring it up with the doctor. If you don't get an adequate response from the doctor, ask the doctor to refer you to a mental health provider and be persistent. And this Our, can be any time after diagnosis, right? Certainly it could be. Other issues too, whatever you're wondering about sex, for example, mm -hmm. sex is often on the minds you yes. know, of young people. Can I do it if I have sex with my partner? Are they gonna get hurt? Am I somehow, you know, you know, in danger? Am I contagious? Yeah, or I'm not feeling it and I'm worried about that. That's a valid concern. Yes. And to bring it up with the doctors. Knowing, and I'm sure you'll be aware, doctors are gonna kind of feel uncomfortable about it. So oftentimes they don't ask about it. Yes. But what we're trying to coach doctors to do now is to be prepared for the patients to bring it up. And if it's something that they're not comfortable with, again, refer them to a specialist in their area. Challenges in work, mention it. Cognition, unclear thinking. There's no reason why a cancer patient or a cancer survivor should sit back and suffer. Mention it to the healthcare provider yes. and be persistent. Say, I need help with this. I need help with this. Absolutely. That is wonderful advice. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Zebrak, for joining us today. We really appreciate you. I know that you are huge in oh, the pleasure. AYA field. So, uh, yes, we so appreciate you joining us today and sharing all about mental health and uh, cancer care. You're welcome. We are in our very last day of this incredible conference. I did notice while I was here that there are several young adult patients and survivors that have attended. So we wanted to know what they have learned from the conference. What are they taking away from a survivorship perspective? So let's go chat with a few. My name is Alfonso and I am an acute lymphoblastic leukemia T-cell survivor. Being here and seeing people from truly all over the world, from India to New Zealand to here in the States, has been really astonishing and sincere to be able to share all this information, all these studies that are going on in AYA care from as early as diagnosis to after treatment, after care, years beyond treatment. It's been really nice to see that more people care about this kind of work. Just the amount of dedication that people have put their time and money in and investing in AYA care because like everyone has been saying, it's not something that is really paid attention to. It's mostly pediatrics and geriatric care with cancer, but AYA subsist, and there's a growing number of survivors and advocates that are here at this conference and all over the world that want to help and collaborate with 
providers, hospitals, institutions, organizations, and nonprofits to spread awareness and actually build a space for us to be cared for properly. So I'm Tanya, I'm from London with Teenage Cancer Trust. I was diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma when I was 20. I'm 24 now, two years into remission. And yeah, this Global Congress has been really incredible. I feel like cancer can be quite a dehumanizing experience sometimes. You sometimes feel like you're a bit of a statistic. And so it's been really encouraging and nice to see young people and their experiences, myself included, at the front and center, and actually being able to feed into best practices on a global scale. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Hi, my name is Nancy and I'm a breast cancer AYA survivor. During this conference, what I've learned is the community of AYA is so close together and reaching for the same goals. And it's beautiful to see everyone coming together. As a survivor coming into this conference, I wished I knew all the references and outreach programs that are there for AYAs. What I'm taking away from this conference is all the resources that are out there for this particular population. I am going to, I'm taking all these pamphlets for work to share it with our AYA. My name's Mallory. I'm a two-time Hodgkin lymphoma survivor diagnosed in 2011 and then again in 2021. Some of the takeaways that I've come out with are that patient voice is so important and it is so required in research, not only from the data side of things and the learnings that happen when we do research studies where we elevate a patient voice, but also from the very get-go when we think about the way that we're designing research studies, the way that we're designing hospital and clinical programs in a survivorship clinic or on an infusion floor and sort of everything in between. And so I think moving forward, hearing more from patients, elevating patient voices is just such an important thing and patients should be loud and proud with their perspective and their voice because it's absolutely crucial. Wow, what an incredible conference. It seems the biggest takeaway from patients and survivors who attended the Global AYA Cancer Congress was that they appreciated the patient voice was being heard by healthcare providers. I hope that all patients, survivors, and caregivers listening today will feel empowered to advocate for your or your loved one's care and open that communication with your healthcare team regarding all aspects of cancer, from resilience and healthcare disparities to mental health. Always remember that you are your own best advocate and LLS is here to help. Thank you to everyone for joining us at the fifth annual Global Adolescent and Young Adult Cancer Congress. Stay tuned for more resources that LLS has for you or your loved ones who have been affected by cancer. The Bloodline with LLS is one part of the mission of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society to improve the quality of lives of patients and their families. Did you know that you can get more involved with the Bloodline podcast? Be sure to check out our subscriber lounge where you can gain access to exclusive content, discuss episodes with other listeners, make suggestions for future topics, or share your story to potentially be featured as a future guest. You will also receive an email notification for each new episode. Join for free today at thebloodline.org forward slash subscriber lounge. 
In addition to the lounge, we could use your feedback to help us continue to provide the engaging content for all people affected by cancer. We would like to ask you to complete a brief survey that can be found in the show notes or at thebloodline.org. This is your opportunity to provide feedback and suggested topics that will help so many people. We would also like to know about you and how we can serve you better. The survey is completely anonymous and no identifying information will be taken. However, if you would like to contact LLS staff, please email thebloodline at lls.org. We hope this podcast helped you today. Stay tuned for more information on the resources that LLS has for you or your loved ones who have been affected by cancer. Have you or a loved one been affected by blood cancer? LLS has many resources available to you. Financial support, peer-to-peer connection, nutritional support, and more. We encourage patients and caregivers to contact our information specialists at one 800 955-4572 or go to lls.org forward slash patient support. You can find more information on programs for young adults at lls.org forward slash young adults. All of these links will be found in the show notes or at thebloodline.org. Thank you again for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Bloodline so you don't miss an episode. We look forward to having you join us next time. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.